So we invited my buddy, Rebecca Miller-Webster, to the podcast today. She and I met through NYC Ruby when back in the day when I used to work up in New York. And now she just generally is taking over the world with Garuco. And you have an upcoming conference. Is that right? From the, the Right Speak Code brand? Yes. Um, so I founded Right Speak Code, which is a conference for women developers all about teaching the skills to become thought leaders, conference speakers, and open source contributors. Uh, so we did our first three-day conference last year in New York, and we're doing a one-day workshop on like owning your expertise and just generally becoming more confident in your knowledge and experience in New York on September 13th and possibly in Chicago and San Francisco this fall. And then we're going to have a three-day conference um, in the spring of 2015. Oh, wow. Have you sold out of New York yet? That's a good question. It's a free <laughs> conference. So yeah. sort of like keeping an eye on the numbers and trying to decide like what percentage oh. of people will not show up. Exactly. The deadly, the deadly no-show rate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think we're like 75, 80% there. Mm -hmm. All right, great. So there's still, it's kind of nice. That it didn't, I thought it would sell out in five seconds. So I, I know some people from Philadelphia who are going because I mean, a free conference is, uh, is kind of the, I had a roommate whose motto that I adopted was this free take two. <laughs> so yeah, I love free things don't and we stickers all? and stickers. I love stickers. Especially stickers. Mm hmm. So is the one-day workshop kind of like a compressed version of the three-day conference, or is it different? Um, it sort of. So like the three-day conference, the first day was like right day, which was about like thought leadership and owning your expertise. And then the second day was on speaking, and the third day was on open source contributing. So the one-day workshop is like mostly the right day, and then we're going to do like a little bit of speaking and open source like sort of just like intro, how does the CFP process work? And then um, how do you find projects that you might be interested in? Awesome. Yeah. So this Right Speak Code conference seems really cool. Is it something you're looking to expand to like other, like more more cities? Or is it kind of like a nationwide thing once a year? Um, well, it's happened once so far. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, we're definitely open to expanding. Um, basically, like all of the organizers uh, like we're in New York and have been in New York. So that's why we've done it in New York. It just makes it a little easier. But right. we've had people come in from like San Francisco and Florida and Atlanta. Um, although I would say like primarily the audience was New York. Um, I definitely like would like it to be bigger, whether that's like having multiple conferences or like moving it around each year. Um, I'm not really sure. So um, like I said, like we're, I'm looking into doing um, the one day free workshop in Chicago and San Francisco, like in the next couple months. Um, so hopefully that'll be a way to sort of like spread it out a little bit. So how did you make the jump of wanting to do a conference and actually doing it? Because it's a lot of work and it seems very intimidating. Yeah, it is a lot of work. First of all, I think you have to be kind of stupid to do it. <laughs> um, like there's some level of like, I don't know, like you, it's like doing a startup to some degree, like you're kind of like, of course I can do this. And then it's a lot of work and you're crazy, but then it happens and it's amazing. Right Speak Code kind of came about because, you know, there's been big conversations about the number of women speaking at conferences and contributing to open source. And I sort of wanted to do those things, um, but wasn't really sure how to. And so I basically created it because I wanted it. And really, I sort of sent like a late night email to a couple um, women developers in New York, Vanessa Hurst, uh, Chris Wu, and Rachel Ober, and was like, hey, I have this crazy idea. What do you think? And it was like right before the holidays, and no one really responded. So I was like, eh, that's it. I don't want to do it myself. <laughs> 
And then come January, like all of them were like, when are we doing this? Let's go. So that's sort of how it came about. And like in two months, we kind of like organized the whole thing, um, which was really crazy because I was speaking at RailsConf. And then I also co-organized Goruka, which happened like two weeks before it, which was like a really terrible idea. And I'm never doing that again. Like two conferences in the same month is a bad idea. So, I mean, I definitely like having help is, is a huge deal. Um, we had the op-ed project, which is an organization that runs seminars for women um, to submit more op-eds, kind of similar to coding in the sense that they like there was a conversation about why there aren't more op-eds written by women and then they looked at the number of women who submitted op-eds and it was actually pretty similar to the number that were published and so they said how do we get more women to submit them um, and I think that's similar in terms of um, technical speaking women don't submit CFPs as often so we had them do the curriculum for the first day and then Vanessa Hurst has a company uh, Code Montage that is focused on open source. So she did the training for open source day. So I really only had to do um, the like curriculum and stuff for the speaking day, which I did with Celia Law, who's also a developer in New York, who I found through like a, a meetup she had started on technical speaking. So so yeah, I don't know. It, it was kind of a whirlwind. And because I had sort of gotten involved in Goruko, I, I got to sort of pick their brains and find out what they did in the early days of Goruko. We did it at Pace University, whose computer science department is like super easygoing and like gave us space for free and was really great. And so that like took away that like financial concern. And then we just started asking people for money and they gave it to us, which seems crazy, but um, companies do that and it's great. Do you ever feel like you're being very meta by doing a conference about conference speaking? I've actually never thought of that, but I'm a big fan of of meta ideas. <laughs> it is kind of meta. Actually, the biggest challenge we have is like it's not it's sort of a conference, but it's not like everybody just talks at you the whole time. It's really more like workshops. They end up giving a talk at the end of the speak day and they end up making a contribution, submitting a pull request for open source projects at the end of the day. So, I was really fo focused on like action-oriented things, but yeah, I guess it's like a conference about speaking at conferences where you get to speak at that conference. So it's maybe like even another level of meta. <laughs> so there's also this trend of almost like joke conferences in a way. Yeah. So do you remember a DHTML conf earlier this year? It was in the JavaScript world, but it was for fans of DHTML. <laughs> uh, and now uh, since since I was in Minneapolis for Midwest uh, JS, I met some people who are trying to organize Notepad Conf <laughs> for fans of Notepad EXE. Is That's it called there. Notepad EXE Conf? It is Notepad Conf, oh. uh, Justin, if you want to get it right. So it is, there is a Kickstarter if you want to kickstart Notepad Conf. Nice. I, That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So in the speak day, does everybody speak at the end or is it some people? Um, no, we had everybody speak at the end. Okay. Uh, we they spoke in groups. They basically like wrote a lightning talk together, um, which actually worked out pretty well. Like everybody kind of got to speak, and then the people that were like a little more nervous, specifically about public speaking, like had a little um, support. So yeah, so basically speak day, we kind of go over the CFP process and um, we do some topic generation, like what are the things that you could talk about had them write a talk proposal, 
um, we brought in conference organizers who kind of gave them feedback on their talk proposals, and then they basically um, like created a presentation in the afternoon and, and gave it. It was a little crazy. It's a little crazy if you think about it. Yeah, it you sounds, don't even have to think about it to think it's crazy. It sounds great, though. Like if everybody's speaking, then it makes it a lot probably less nerve-wracking to speak yourself. Yeah, that was the hope, and like the audience is a little bit smaller. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, some people were like, I wanted to speak in front of everybody. And some people were like, I was so happy that I didn't. I could like speak for one minute in front of like a smaller group of people. But um, I think that's how we're going to do it like for the time being. Also, logistically, it's really hard to get a lot of people speaking um, and not have that like take up the entire afternoon. Yeah. So you also had some other topics that we could talk about, too. So you uh, say that you are interested in talking about working with junior developers and mentoring. Yeah, I sort of have had an interesting experience over the last couple years. Um, my husband is actually learning how to code. And that sort of came about because um, he had this great job like that he had kind of worked his way up in like admin whatever and he basically like was running the database for like the admissions department of like an acting school and he started telling me about the things that he was doing they like sent him to like a SQL training <laughs> and he was like creating HTML forms and like he had to like put the date of auditions in an email and of course like you know dates were in like UTC format and he was like it looked so ugly so I created this other column that like converted it into a string so that it would look nice and or like he was like yeah so I had to get the data from one system into another so I did all of this stuff and I was like hmm you're doing what a programmer does but with really really shitty tools and then like sort of you know the economy got shitty and he was like less and less happy at his job and so I was like here's the Chris Pine book learn to program maybe you'll like it um, trying to be like not pushy although I think according to him I was pushy I don't know <laughs> Um, so anyway, see, so he sort of was like dabbling in that and um, like trying to learn. And I'm sort of watching this, having learned in a totally different way um, because I, I have a degree and also it was a really long time ago. So it's hard to know, like, I don't know how people learn stuff because a lot of things seem like really um, obvious to me. And then also um, at the job I was in, I... The CEO and I were like convinced the C or the CTO and I convinced the CEO to hire a junior developer to do like admin stuff for like customer service that, you know, like the senior devs would never would just never get prioritized for them. And I sort of like was um, his manager and he had gone to like the General Assembly Web Immersive. Um, and so that was just like really cool to like watch that happen and simultaneously then having my husband learn and like seeing what people were doing. And and then now I'm like teaching at Dev Bootcamp. So I'm like watching students kind of learn and then get jobs. So I think that I like the idea of like training people under like an apprentice model. And I've been like sort of thinking about that for like the last year or so. And like, how do we do that? And how do we become realistic about like what they're capable of doing? And also see that as like a valuable thing, like in our industry. Um, Cause you know, everyone wants to hire senior engineers, but like, how do we like train more people if there really is like a shortage of developers and how do we train them well, I guess. When you do take on an apprentice, what what loyalty is there? Like, I think a big fear for a lot of people is if you take on an apprentice, once they gain those skills, right, then they're you just like free. You train them just enough for them to get a better job. Right, they're free to go wherever. That is, I think that's what people are afraid of, yeah. 
Oh, really? Interesting. I mean, to be fair, I do know people who have literally gotten trained in new skills and then left immediately once they got that new skill. Oh, but I think if you are a company that you know but the, va- the, values training your people and, and... Yeah, and we talked about this when we talked about continuous learning, that it's the the what if we spend all this money training people and they leave and then what if we don't and they don't. Yeah, they stay. I mean, I guess I guess that's always a fear, though. Like, you could have a senior developer do that who wants to, like, switch languages or switch industries and do that as well. I guess, like, my general feeling is that um, you engender loyalty by treating people well and, like giving, like, giving kind of employees, like, what they want and need. And, and that's not always about money. I think people want, like to feel like they're part of the process and that like they're learning what they need to learn and that they see like growth and continuous learning opportunities, as you said. Um, and I think that's true of like senior or junior developers. A lot of the apprentice models that I've seen less so like on, in New York and like the East Coast, um, but I know like in Chicago and San Francisco, like it seems like, I don't know, from what I've heard, which could be totally like a bias segment, um, this is happening a little more, is like often they'll do like three months apprenticeships and like you get paid a lot less and then it's like after those three months or after those six months then there's a conversation about hiring them full-time and so it ends up being both like the employer and um, the apprentice saying like do we want to continue um, so I think you can like build in for that a little bit um, and also I like the idea of having them work on stuff that like you would never prioritize anyway like I'm a big fan of like all the like admin stuff and and little things and like back-end stuff that like somebody in companies always is like desperate for, but just would never get prioritized. How do you, in an apprenticeship situation, how do you tell if somebody is capable of, you know, learning programming? Like, how, how do you, how do you separate existing skills from potential when you're interviewing somebody? I also want to, I think we should chat about what we think about the two humps theory. What is the two humps theory? Yes. You, you you took my bait, Len. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a theory in computer science education that there are two humps that everybody, and, and also the, I mean, spoiler, uh, this is highly debated and a lot of people obviously think it's not true at all. But there is a theory that, and, and that some people think the data is corrupt. Anyway, there's a theory that there are two humps in learning computer science concepts. So being able to, because when you try and explain to people who don't yet know like what a variable is or what an array is. I was actually talking to someone yesterday who was telling me about, they, they actually made a, a joke in, where, about arrays where something like that they didn't ever think they would use them. And I asked them about it afterward. I said, I didn't get your joke. It didn't make sense. <laughs> and, and he said that he was just making the joke because when he was first learning about arrays, he got really frustrated and was like, there was no useful case for arrays, <laughs> which I think is really funny. Because the the concept, the idea that there is no such thing in the world as an ordered set of data, <laughs> that it's really hilarious to me. But anyways, the two humps is that there pretty much everybody can get over the first hump. Like if you see a camel that has you know the first uh uh two humps, like a big hump and little hump, something like that, or little hump big hump, not sure. Anywho, you can get over the first one, and then there's a valley, but then a lot of people can't get over the second one. That's the theory of the two humps. So what is the second one? Uh, I don't know what you would quantify it as. I think it's I think it's kind of 
maybe is grokking some of those those higher level concepts or like memory or something. I don't think it's specifically a it's, it is all kind of logical and conceptual. So the way they did this test is that they gave people a survey. For example, if you give someone an assignment statement and in programming, we get used to the idea of assignment where the right side, the left side becomes the value of the right side. Yeah. But to a lot of people that doesn't come off as intuitive or they don't pick up on it. And so that was kind of the two humps test. I guess, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't hire an apprentice who doesn't understand assignment. So like, I think I'm talking about people that are like a little bit further along. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying everyone should be a programmer, but I, I have come to believe that like, given the sort of right environment, anybody like, and, and the desire to some degree, like anybody could learn to program. A lot of it is abstract thinking, but like, we think abstractly in various ways. We just associate abstract thinking with sort of like math and computer science and engineering. And, you know, obviously it would take longer for some people than others, but I don't know, like, I don't think that like our brains are like fixed and like, I could never understand this thing. I think, um, like the way that we teach it and the way that we approach it and the way that it's we're sort of socialized to think about things ends up mattering a lot. Like in teaching people to program, it's really interesting when we like look at algorithms and stuff and people like, there are people that just have like a block about math. They're like, I was, I, I'm not good at math. I could never do math. Um, and so like they'll look at like, how do you write a sorting algorithm and associate that with math and not be able to do it. But if you can put it in a context of like, something they understand and use like we talked about binary search and like if you look at some of the explanations people are like i have no idea like mental block about that but if you're like well if you have a phone book you could like flip through all the pages to find something or you could like cut it in half and then say like is the person i'm looking for on the right or the left and then just keep doing that and they're like oh yeah that makes sense so I don't know. I guess, I mean, I think there's lots of humps to learning to program. I don't know that like people can't get over one or the other. I think it's just like different for different people and not everybody wants to and that's fine. But in terms of apprenticeship, like I don't know that you would take on someone who doesn't know how to program at all. Like, you know, there's lots of free resources like Codecademy and all of those things to like learn some of the basics um, and then like teach yourself like PHP or Rails or Python or whatever to like move forward. I'm in the camp where I think that that programming so so we'll we'll drop it in the the show notes but Len did find a coding horror post that refers to this this study that we we're talking about and but I I think of coding almost as a future kind of literacy because I I'm semi convinced that at one point in history people said nah you know not everyone can learn to read like some people just can't read <laughs> yeah and that seems awful and offensive to me because I love reading. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that there's like a level of basic understanding and knowledge that like there will be a point at which everyone like will think it's crazy if people um, don't know that. Although on the other hand, there are countries and places across the world where people don't learn to read. So that still even happens. Yeah. And it, it makes me very sad. Yeah, me too. Anyone have a pick me up from the sad that people... <laughs> can't read that we need that we need to increase the literacy rate so i guess i guess maybe rephrasing the question um instead of being able to tell if someone could program how do you find people that would be interested in programming that are not programming right now 
I guess Ooh, they, they, they seek you out? I think out, that's or? an interesting question. So I, I think about that too, of kind of what communities do we reach? Because I think the it's a little bit of it too, when you talk about the the very beginning of the pipeline that I think say code.org, those people are working on, is that these people don't even think of it as an option. And I've, I talked to some people on on an, another program before where we talked about actually that concept in general too, where, you know, a friend of my, my friend David Dylan Thomas is a, I, oh, I'm, I hope I don't get his, his title wrong, but, but the funny part of it is, is that he's a content strategist and that is something that did not exist. So you literally couldn't have Fathom doing it because it did not exist. So it's a logical problem in that how do you even introduce people to the idea of an entire field that, you know, I, when, actually, yes, when I was five years old, JavaScript did not exist. Yeah, I, I think that's like a, a really interesting question and one that I, I think a lot about um, because I think a lot about like diversity in tech. There's definitely like a digital divide in the sense that like what I've seen over the last couple of years is that the people that didn't have access to computers 10 years ago, whether that's maybe 10 years ago is too short, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever, or as kids or whatever, whether that's because like they're older and they're switching careers or often it's like a socioeconomic class issue, definitely have like a much harder time learning to program. And it's, it's not really the concepts, it's the like... It's just like, Un- like unfamiliarity. Added, yeah. It's, and the, like the added mental like overhead of like just using the computer. So I think there's some like level of like just basic like, you know, understanding what you can use like keyboard shortcuts for and like being a, a quicker typer, all of those things like do tend to matter. And so I think there's some like base level of computer fundamentals that like people need. But outside of that, I, I think that one of the big things is that people don't realize how diverse the options are. Um, yeah, like content strategists. Yeah, exactly. I run this like sexism workshop at Davu Camp. And one of the things that I talk about in order to get like the, you know, predominantly male group to like think about the ways that stereotypes like really actually do affect your life is thinking about what the stereotype of a programmer is. Um, and like, you know, a lot of them will say like, oh, they sit in a basement by themselves. That's what I thought it was. Or they're antisocial or they would never get a date or they're like really good at math or they were a prodigy and how there's this like box of what it means to be a programmer. And that's like, I don't, I know like maybe one person who maybe sort of fits all of those things. And the reality is, in my experience, I work a lot with other people. I have to like communicate a lot. And I like definitely don't sit in a basement and I definitely didn't know I was going to be a programmer when I was in high school. And so I just like if we could and I think code.org is trying to do this to some degree. But like if we could like show people programming in various industries, um, I think it, using languages is hard because people don't really like understand the differences or that that those exist, but just like the diverse options in terms of what your day to day would look like and what like how you would interact with other people and all of those sorts of like 
things around being a programmer. Young girls in particular start thinking about like the day-to-day -day experience of their job um, and using that to determine how they would answer like what you would do when you grow up at like 12. So I think like to some degree it's it's presenting like all of the options that you have as a programmer and and making people realize that that they could do this in in various ways and combine it with other interests. I'd actually like to go back to that other question that you asked though, which is like, how do you know that someone will like learn quickly in an apprenticeship? Yeah. I think that I, I actually think like, you know, obviously we do like pairing interviews are very common and things like that. But, but one thing that isn't actually intuitive to people is like, or it's intuitive to us because we've been doing it a long time, but like when you come across a problem, like whether you're getting an error or you're just not quite sure how to do it, like how do you, how do you like figure that out? And like that seems really intuitive to us, but like it's not actually intuitive to other people and different people have sort of different approaches. So I sort of think of it in a couple of ways. There's like, you know, going into um, like an interactive shell and just like experimenting with stuff looking at documentation and being able to read it or like Googling and see, looking at Stack Overflow or tutorials and then being able to apply that to what you're doing and then also being able to like read error messages. And so I think you can sort of, instead of looking so much at exactly what they're doing, thinking about watching sort of their approach to solving problems and whether, whether they're sort of effective or they're just sort of kind of like, um, I don't know, just like randomly grabbing at anything that they can. Like, are they like actually reading the Stack Overflow article and looking at the code or are they just like pasting it and running it and seeing it? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's like one way to see how like effective they would be at, at grasping new concepts and, and dealing with new problems. Yeah. If someone doesn't have that, though, how, how would you go about teaching it to them? I think it's sort of like making them aware of what the strategies are and like what they should be doing. And I think there's like two ends of the spectrum. There's like the people that just like sort of try a bunch of shit until it works. And then there are the people that are like so cautious they have to read like every single article before they'll even like try to type any code. And so I think some of it's just making it aware of the options and making them aware of the options in terms of what they should do and like when they might um, approach things in certain ways. And then and then to some degree, it's like practice and them practicing on their own. Or like if you're mentoring them and doing a pairing session, that's a good opportunity to like point things out and like sort of push them in one direction or another. Do you all think that people or potential apprentice employers um, put too much effort into, I guess, the desire to learn or kind of passion? Because I feel if someone's looking for an apprentice job and they're trying to learn programming, they're already a little bit passionate about it. And if they aren't in the future, they'll just take themselves out the game instead of, I feel like it'll happen naturally if they're not into it. And folks kind of focus a lot of attention on, does this person show enthusiasm to learn? I feel like if they're already trying to learn and they're not showing it, then maybe like they're a little burned out and they need some motivation. Have you ever had a bad intern, Jervon? No, but I've treated I don't an think you've had badly. Oh, <laughs> not, that's not nice. I've actually not, had like not bad not in that good way. Interns. It was like we had one. <laughs> you just stayed like we so, weren't prepared. And and you know, it's it's one of those things though where I think it it did, it just doesn't hurt that bad to have a not very good intern and a lot of it does end up being on on the place so 
if we didn't have time to actually set up like a mentoring situation very well. So I had an intern once who, like when I had time uh, and access to educational resources in early jobs and internships, I was using the hell out of that stuff. And so I would, if I didn't have a project to work on, I would be teaching myself something or another because that was like designated time. But I had an intern once who all they would do is check Tumblr. And it really bothered me to see someone waste that opportunity. I've also had an intern before in a situation where they did have all the mentorship help and everything, and it was through a great program. And then I just, I inherited their work after they left. And what they had said they had did was not what they had did, had done, der. <laughs> and it was, but the the thing is, the, you know, it's not a very expensive situation in that luckily I could reframe expectations and say, actually, this is not done at all. And I'm going to have to completely do it over because absolutely nothing of value was done. And please don't hire that person. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's as far as it goes. It's not, you know, they aren't, they don't have like a black spot on them if they, if that was just, I don't know, maybe it was their first, maybe they were a sophomore or something and it was their first internship and they just didn't know anything and didn't ask for help when they should have. But I have had bad interns. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree with you, Pam. I think like, um, I think you can structure like an internship or an apprenticeship or a junior developer situation, like, um, in a way where like there's a much lower cost if things don't work out. Um, I also think like I, I'm always a little skeptical of the passion and enthusiasm argument because I, I just, I think it's often like misused and I think it's often used to, sort of like reinforce I don't know like those stereotypes about a programmer like you know I think I get what you're getting at that it it's used to it's kind of I recently saw yet another article about hiring where some some person who's hired 10 people in the past is you know put positioning themselves as a hiring expert and saying that the number one thing is cultural fit yeah and the thing is if you always hire for only cultural fit then you will only hire people who don't have any new ideas and won't challenge you. Right. And I think um, and I think it like tends to particularly harm women and, and underrepresented groups for various reasons. But like, um, you know, like I saw um, Camille uh, Fournier, who's the VP of engineering at Rent the Runway, give a talk and um, or I think I saw her video from Bang Bang Com Con. And one of the things that she says, it, the, the talk is on like, how do you kind of stay in love with programming? Um, but one of the things she said is like, you, you don't have to do side projects. Obviously, like you want to keep learning, but people do that in different ways. And we shouldn't assume that because everybody like, creates an app that you can see for everything and they spend like 100% of their time on programming that they're not passionate and they're not enthusiastic. And in some ways, being able to like have other interests and like synthesize ideas from outside into what you're doing, that's different. Like that's where innovation comes about. And then also I think, I mean, diverse teams tend to make better decisions as you mentioned, Pam, um, because like they'll challenge you and they'll come with new ideas. But that isn't free. And so sometimes that means that like people aren't agree, gonna agree or they might like butt heads a little bit. And we shouldn't think of that as like a bad thing. We, I mean, obviously like if someone's just like a straight up asshole, then like, 
that's different. But um, if people like, you know, care about, you know, what they're doing in their craft and using good practices and or they care about the product or whatever, um, like that's it's not a bad thing to have to sometimes have like tensions and disagreements because it, it helps everyone and like the product and everyone's code become better. I was just about to ask you about your blog post last week. Thoughts on team tension? Um, yeah, which is basically saying <laughs> I just said. Um, yep. um, I, yeah, I think there's like a couple things. I think that we like, I mean, like I said, obviously you don't want to like have one person who's like an asshole and everybody hates them. But I think sometimes, especially with the cultural fit argument, we put a lot of emphasis on like people always agreeing and I think that I, I don't necessarily think that's good. I think sometimes like there's good reason to debate. Like you should have debates if you like are going to decide to like bring in a totally new technology or like um, change like um, change like your servers. Like are are you going to start um, like deploying to Amazon? Are you going to like buy your own rack? Like you should have debates about those. It shouldn't be like it shouldn't be like an easy decision necessarily. And people can come with different ideas and like everybody can kind of learn from that and if like the team works together well and like trusts and respects each other, like even if someone doesn't quote like win the argument, um, like I think everyone will still feel okay as long as everybody kind of feels heard. And I also think that sometimes people misinterpret like not having tension in situations where really what hap has happened is like one person has basically silenced and strongholded the rest of the team and people just don't bother speaking up. Right, like most people disagree but nobody will yeah. say anything. Right, and and I actually think that happens a lot more than people think it does. Um, and so thinking about like, if people feel comfortable speaking up, that's, that's a good sign. And like, as long as you sort of have a team um, that works well together, and you have a process where people feel like they were heard and kind of respected, then like, it doesn't actually matter if, if you like go with their idea or not. I didn't read the post. But do you have any tips for? I thought people? you were just gonna stop there. LOL didn't read. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, of uh, people um, who are afraid to speak up to get to that point. Maybe like go around the the room and ask everybody their opinion and kind of give them a chance to say something. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, to some degree, like you have to have like, whether it's a team lead or just like a facilitator, like if someone feels silenced, then like to some degree, someone who has sort of like power over the group who could like open that up needs to sort of step in and, and say like, this is important in order to shift that power dynamic. Um, but in terms of like making sure that people are heard, yeah, like I definitely think, you know, going around and letting everyone sort of like express like their opinion or their thoughts on a topic before you sort of like respond and start debating things is a really good way to start the conversation. And then I also think having a process for like making a decision, like at the end of the day, like, are we going to sort of like vote on it? Or like, is a team going to vote on it? Or is it sort of like, which I actually benevolent think is, dictatorship, benevolent dictatorship, exactly. Um, um, yeah, is the team going to vote on it? Or like, at the end of the day, if it's a tie, is it someone's decision? Um, I think also can be helpful for like how that decision gets made. I also think we tend to confuse like, inaction is still an action. You know what I mean? Like, if if you don't decide, if you don't do anything, then then someone or whoever is like um, responsible for that feature 
or whatever it is, is just going to make a decision. And so like at some point you have to decide and you either decide as a team or like one person ends up deciding. And so not like not stepping away from that situation if there's a debate and like having a clear process for like how to make a decision. Is it the responsibility of the person that's scared to speak up? to like go to the team lead and talk about it or is it the team lead's responsibility to kind of get the vibe of the room I mean I think ideally it's the team lead's responsibility I think that I mean this is a tricky question for me because um I think that well because obviously I care a lot about diversity and like having a space safe space where people feel like they can speak up is is different for different people and tends to be affected by people's sort of socialization and experience in the world and like their social identity and I think that on some level the team lead has the responsibility to create a culture where people feel safe speaking up. Even if somebody's not speaking up it's not hurting only them it's hurting the entire team so the entire team should be interested in encouraging yeah. them to hear their voice. Yeah exactly I mean that said if you're like in a situation and you don't feel like you can speak up and you feel comfortable with the team lead or maybe someone who like implicitly has sort of like a strong voice on the team, it, I think that you might be able to say like, hey, I don't feel like I can speak up. And that maybe not right away, like could help change the dynamic of the team. So I don't think it's the person who doesn't feel like they, they can speak up's responsibility. But I think that they they may be able to help change the situation if there's someone like they feel safe with who has the potential to like help start that process or kickstart that process. Someone gave a talk, I believe, in at Code Explode in Portland a while ago, and I remember them linking to their video or their deck, and one of the things they said about a, a room of people is if you divide the number of minutes of the meet for the meeting by the number of people, and some people are talking longer than those that those minutes, then you should think about kind of the importance of what you're talking about if you're taking more time than than what would be a equitable fair share. That does depend on the topic, though. Not like if I was in a meeting where we're trying to figure out what our DevOps strategy is, I'm not really going to have an opinion. But if we're going to be talking about our, our JavaScript framework choice, then I'm probably not going to stop talking. But you might have an opinion about the deployment process if it affects you. Yeah. Even, even and if also, it's not your, your main concern. It also might be, then why are you in the meeting? That's, if that's you don't have anything point. to contribute. <laughs> True. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, that feels like a little bit too rigid to me, but I but I totally get yeah, it. It was more of a thought pattern yeah. than a rule. Yeah, totally. And I think one way is to like start with everyone doing it and also like having a facilitator for the meeting who can sort of like make sure that if there's someone who's constantly interrupting people that they like stop them and let like someone else talk and like making space for like people who are maybe more introverted to like take a breath before they they speak and like make sure that like the same people person isn't talking over and over again can like help flip that do we want to do picks sure uh do you have a pick pam oh, i shouldn't have brought it up <laughs> <laughs> i'll go first so my pick is it's called lambda bubble pop so it's this website that uh chris Eulinger made chrisulinger.com uh put a link in the show notes it's kind of hard to spell um but so it's essentially in uh lisp or closure or even even like any programming language there's like an order of operations uh so it has a couple examples 
of, for instance, mapping a function called add one over to a list of one through five, and you click the bubble of like that entire expression, and then it goes to the next stage of what the computer would do in terms of breaking it up. And then you keep popping bubbles to see how the computation happens. So I thought it was a really great way of like understanding order of operations when a computer is parsing a program and, and how S expressions work. So Lambda Bubble Pop. Jervon, do you have a pick? I do. Um, found this theme, this terminal theme, me last week uh, called Saturn Colors. That's very colorful. It's very pretty. Um, it's by, I think, a guy called Pasquale. There'll be a link in the show notes to it. And then my music pick is uh, a song called My Silver Lining by a band called First Aid Kit. Great song. So this week I'm going to pick the Overcast iOS uh, app for listening to podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, this is just a pretty app. It's by Marco Arment, and uh, it has a lot of sensible defaults. Like if you fast forward instead of going to the next track, you'll skip 45 seconds. So it's a uh, it's good for uh, skipping past uh, sponsors. <laughs> yeah, Overcast app. Rebecca, do you have a pick? Yes. So um, I'm going to pick my conference, which I guess is kind of lame, but I think it's going to be great. It's writespeakcode.com. And the New York City workshop is September 13th. And um, I think it's going to be really great. It's at Pivotal Labs. I'm going to do a music pick. And I have to give a little background, which is that... um, in my car, the, the, the like iPhone adapter broke, and I still have a tape player. So I dug out all of my tapes from high school, and it's been the most awesome thing that's happened to me in like the last couple months <laughs> because it's just like this amazing nostalgia ride. And so I have a song stuck in my head, so I'm gonna use that song. And the song is called Fred Astaire, and it's by a band called Lucky Boys Confusion. So that's my music pick. So Pam, did you find your pick? I did. So in actually part of an effort to find more ways to make speaking at the Philadelphia JavaScript developers meetup accessible to people who want to propose, because I previously it has been me recruiting people on Twitter and asking them to sell out their friends by recruiting them on Twitter and things like that. But I recently just made a, a little form. So it's just a simple fill out your name, your email, what you want to talk about form so that if people uh, are intimidated because I'm scary, they can talk to me by filling out the form. And then the other thing that is from my link list is Jafar Hussein, who has been giving this talk, his kind of talk for 2014 around the circuit has been on asynchronous JavaScript at Netflix and talking about really the observer pattern uh, as kind of what the core of it is about. There's a webinar through the ACM that's free uh, that so anyone can watch it, which I believe is probably going to be the same talk that I saw earlier this year, and it's really good. So it's worth, and you can always register for the webinar, and then you'll get the video afterward. So I will pick that as my other link, and it is on Friday, so maybe this will be released before Friday. Awesome. So thanks so much, Rebecca. Uh, where can uh, people find out more about you? Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, on Twitter, it's R Miller Webster, all one word. Um, my website is Rebecca Miller Webster.com, and my GitHub is RMW. So they're all different, um, but all related to my name. Excellent. Cool. 
And uh, show notes are at turing.cool slash 16. Or no, <laughs> turing.cool slash 17. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can skip numbers, but we can't do the same number. Yeah. That would, that would be hard. <laughs> yeah. The last one wasn't any good anyway. <laughs> and uh, follow us on Twitter at TuringCool, and I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. And also leave us a review on iTunes. Yes. 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 And we have stickers. <laughs> Send your self-addressed envelope to the to-be-determined P.O. box. Cool. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Rebecca. Bye.